Welcome to the Faculty Coffee Break Podcast, hosted by the Center for Advancement of Faculty Excellence, or as we like to call it, the CAFE, at St. Francis College in Brooklyn, New York. Rooted in a long history of faculty achievement and commitment to student success at St. Francis, the CAFE promotes research, innovation, and high-quality academic engagement through an evidence-based, equity-minded approach to teaching, learning, and faculty development. My name is Dr. Molly Mann, and I'm the director of the CAFE and host of the Faculty Coffee Break podcast. Today, I'm delighted to share my conversation with Dr. Shamard Charles. Dr. Charles is a public health doctor and physician journalist with nearly 10 years of experience in health promotion and health communications. Currently, he's a United Nations Global Press Fellow, a frequent contributor to the GRIO, and host of the Revolutions Within Us podcast, a monthly health podcast. Prior to joining the St. Francis College faculty, Dr. Charles served as senior health journalist for NBC News, leading the network's health and medical coverage, including groundbreaking reporting during Hurricane Maria and Hurricane Harvey. He's also no stranger to the broadcast booth, having previously been featured on CNBC and NPR for his reporting on the dearth of Black men in medicine. More recently, Dr. Charles expanded his coverage internationally, writing and producing stories in Nigeria and covering a variety of public health topics, including vaccine hesitancy and vaccine-preventable diseases. His work can be found on the NBC Nightly News with Lester Holt, NBC News Now, Today, and NBCNews.com. In this episode, Dr. Charles shares his journey to public health, journalism, and teaching, and tells us his secrets for balancing it all. Let's get into the conversation. So what I would really love to know is what started your interest in public health? What, what started you in a health career? Wow. Uh, for me, that's a loaded question because I almost feel like I've always been two things in one. I've always been kind of a pro-health, uh, pro-positive health person. That's always been who I am. I've always had a health focus. Uh, when I was growing up, I grew up between three different environments. So I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. I grew up in Canada and Ottawa specifically. And then I grew up also in Long Island when my parents moved from Brooklyn to uh, Long Island. And so for me, um, I was always taking care of someone, right? Our grandmother stayed with us. Um, I took care of my aunt. Um, I affectionately call her mom. Uh, she has since passed away, but uh, I, I call her mom and I took care of her in Canada and she was the type one diabetic. Uh, and then, you know, as I grew up, there was always kind of someone or, 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 or something that needed help. And, and so for me, I always had a, a major focus on how can I help the sort of community in general. And so for me, public health became a big interest when I started to shift my focus away from just helping individual people and kind of thinking about ways that I could do the same thing that I'm doing for them, but for a whole group of people. And so this population health focus uh, really started in college. I was part of a um, nonprofit organization called Gentleman Equality, and we did a lot of uh, community service events. Uh, one of our big bedrocks was volunteerism. And so I loved going out into the community and helping in any way that I could, whether it was like passing out pamphlets, increasing um, health literacy, um, you know, kind of discussing the benefits of vaccination, whatever it was. Uh, I always loved kind of helping people on a, a mass scale, which is different than medicine, right? Where you're helping, you know, people one at a time. I really just enjoyed um, that 
sort of health promotion, health education aspect. And I felt like I could get more of that in the field of public health. So, you know, the short answer is, it's always kind of been an interest. Uh, I didn't always have a name that I could put to it, but it's always been an interest. And now that I actually have a name to it, it's so fulfilling to be able to tell people that I'm in public health uh, and that I'm doing many of the same things that I've been doing, uh, but now it's more legitimized than ever. And you have such this wonderful mix of talents because you have this you know, medical healthcare career, and you also have um, a very, you know, robust journalism career. So um, did did those two interests come up together for you? Or was journalism something that you became interested in later on? Um, I will say that public health and medicine came first. Uh, and then journalism came by way of different events that happened in medicine or public health that I felt needed some writing about. Uh, And then writing sort of transformed from, hey, I need to write about some of these experiences to it kind of became a therapeutic thing for me. So it wasn't really journalism at first, at least not formal journalism. It was more just like writing and journaling, period. (laughs) Uh, and then it kind of transformed into what it uh, what it is now. But I, I can give you some background. So um, I believe it was, oh, geez. Um, I want to say maybe about eight years ago, maybe a little bit more than that. Um, I was doing a, um, a mission in uh, a medical mission in uh, Santiago, uh, Dominican Republic. And I ruptured my Achilles there. And when I ruptured my Achilles there, uh, I was working at a pediatric clinic at the time. Um, I had to be rushed back to the United States to be able to um, have surgery here. Um, And my surgeon, um, uh, his name is David Colarella. He's a great, great, uh, great man and a mentor of mine. Uh, He actually performed my my surgery for me. Um, But one of the sort of realities of having a ruptured Achilles tendon as a, you know, sort of young person who feels like you're invincible is, you know, you're going to be off your, your feet for eight to 12 weeks. It's just part of the recovery. And during that time, you don't really realize all the things that are happening to your body. You kind of think that, oh, things are going to happen to my leg, my ankle, uh, you know, uh, and I'll just bounce back and I'll recover. Uh, But, um, you know, during that time, I, you know, I caught an infection. Uh, I almost lost my ability to walk. I, uh, I became depressed. I became anxious. Um, I'm a very physically active individual. So to have that taken away from me was like maybe the worst thing that could have ever happened to me. Uh, and so during that time, I just wrote <laughs> and I just wrote uh, and and sort of the physical therapy and the um, help from medical professionals was tantamount, of course. Uh, but also, I, I have to admit that like writing kind of saved my life in that in, in that instance. And so I wrote and I wrote and I wrote and I wrote. Uh, and then I had some friends of mine who would come by um, and, and I couldn't do anything. So I, I'm talking about I was vulnerable to the world. I had to be bathed. I uh, had people grocery shop with me. If I wanted to go to church, I had to have someone help me. Uh, and so I went from being a place uh, where I was fully independent to uh, being fully vulnerable. 
Uh, and so during that time, um, when I would have, you know, people, whether it was my sister or my best friend, Calvin, or my other, one of my other best friends, uh, Charlie, um, who I went to medical school with, I went to medical school with Calvin as well. Um, but I've known them my, you know, entire life. Uh, you know, during that time, um, I kind of had to deconstruct who I was, you know, here I was, you know, this black athletic guy who's at an Ivy League institution, um, relegated to just like, you know, the, the very sort of essence of who I was, which was uh, just a normal human being who <laughs> just needed to recover like everyone else. Uh, and so um, when you're kind of lauded in medicine for like what you're doing and you have to kind of deconstruct yourself and reimagine yourself as just the normal person, the normal son, uh, brother, partner that you are, uh, it, it's kind of jarring for you. And so during that time, I would like just sit in my room by myself and I would just write. And my friends would always kind of check in on me. And there was one friend of mine, his name is Charlie. Um, and I think I previously mentioned him before. Um, he kind of came into the room one day and he was like, listen, you got to get up. You like got to do some stuff. You have to like walk. And I was like, oh, no, I'm, I'm doing some stuff. I'm, I'm writing. And so he um, was like, um, uh, well, if you're if you're writing, I'd love to read it. And so I, he was like my first editor. And so I gave my stuff over to, to Charlie and, um, and he was like, wow, this stuff is incredible. Um, and I was like, yeah, well, that's kind of the end of it because I'm in a dark place. So I'm not going to write like this ever again, or, or I hope I don't ever get to the dark place where I need to write like this. And Charlie was like, oh, you probably need like a writing mentor, right? Um, it'll allow you sort of therapeutically to talk about what you're writing. Uh, so it's not just living in your head and on a piece of paper, but also um, he said, you know, maybe this could live somewhere else, right? In the media world. Uh, and so I, I thought about it. I thought about it deeply. I ran it by two of my other friends, Sunket and, and Calvin, uh, and they both read it and they really loved what they read. I think the first thing that I wrote was just a letter to my 16 year old self, uh, you know, just, talking to myself at the time, I don't know, maybe I was like 28, talking to myself, like all the things, all the mistakes that you've made, the things that you would have done uh, differently, um, how, you know, the goal in your life is not to be a fancy schmancy. The goal in your life is to help people kind of get back to it. Um, and so I just spoke to myself, uh, you know, deeply, honestly, raw, uncut. Um, and then uh, there was a, um, there was an, uh, opportunity to kind of do a medical internship, if you will, um, at a news station. It was uh, News 12 or no, I think it was New York 1. Uh, and so I, I couldn't do it because I couldn't walk. I was in a wheelchair or crutches. And so I emailed uh, the woman, I, I forget her name, um, but I but I emailed her and I said, hey, um, I, I can't do this rotation, but I would love to have a medical mentor. Uh, and then uh, at that point she was like well you know we need someone physically here but I can put you into contact with someone else and then long story short the person that I was put into contact with was um Susan Wagner who's the um who was the head of the health and medical unit at NBC News and so that's kind of how my career at NBC kind of started she read I, I actually sent her I didn't I was like I don't have any professional stuff here's this letter that I wrote to my 16 year old self when she read it, she was like, um, hey, you know, I have no doubt that you're 
a, you know, a, a wonderful clinician, but um, I also want to, sorry for the noise in the background, but uh, she also mentioned that, uh, you know, you probably have another gift uh, and that other gift is, is writing. Uh, so I, so I took that seriously. This is somebody who writes and edits and produces for her entire life at the highest level. And she's telling me a novice writer that I have a gift. So I was like, let me just capitalize on that. Um, and let me share that with the world. And so, you know, I've had great editors, great producers. I've refined my work to a place that um, I'm consistently proud of the work that I produce. I've been all over the world, you know, sort of covering um, some of the biggest unfortunately, tragedies in the world. Um, most of my work has been around sort of vaccine hesitancy uh, of late, but, you know, uh, yesterday I spent the entire day, or not yesterday, two days ago, rather, I spent the entire evening and day um, uh, covering DeMar Hamlin's, um, you know, sort of tragic collapse uh, due to cardiac arrest in an NFL football game. So, uh, you know, those are some of the things that I, that I do and can continue to do, and that's kind of my journey to to journalism it really bore out of you know writing and and sort of unpacking some of the experiences that I had in medicine and then unpacking my own personal experience uh, through a physical injury and then uh, sort of you know taking advantage of the opportunity that I had that was born out of some real really really just positive feedback that I got from some uh, dedicated and close uh, friends and, and family in my life. That's such a powerful story. And um, did that also change your kind of your relationship to a medical career, career into healthcare? Because you, you described being interested in it as a caregiver, right? And, you know, being a clinician where you are the person offering care to somebody who is the patient. And then, you know, your experience kind of flipped around and you were the person needing care. So did that that change your perspective on things after that experience? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think my bedrock is my bedside manner anyway. So I, I think that uh, the more empathetic I can be, the, the better my work and my practice is, whether it's on an individual or population level. So there's no doubt that it just helped me to be a, a better clinician. Um, you know, I, I tell people two things all the time. One, I, you know, I tell my students and I tell my, you know, advisees, my mentees, I tell them all the time that, you know, you can learn this material. Uh, you can learn, you know, material. Um, there's so much information out there. People are more knowledgeable than ever. Uh, so you, that part of it is like, you can do it. Don't even worry about that part, actually, um, at all. It's all of the other things, right? Can you write? You know, can you be empathetic? Can you uh, make quick decisions, ethical decisions, tough decisions? Can you break bad news? Uh, can you do all those things, right? And those are all the soft skill things, except it's a lie, right? None of those things are soft skills. All those things are the hard things to do, right? Learning the material is actually the easiest part of doing any of this work, right? In journalism, people are like, oh my God, I can't write, so I can't be a journalism. It's like, no, you you can probably write and you can learn how to write. The bigger issue is, you know, can you tell the truth when it's hard to tell the truth? Uh, those are kind of the bigger things. So for me, there's no doubt that this experience has allowed me to be a truth teller. It's allowed me to sort of peer into someone else's soul and my own soul and to be able to tell stories that other people may not feel comfortable telling because I've told my own uncomfortable story. If you can tell your own story, then you can tell, you know, someone, someone else's story, um, or at least you can help them tell their own story. Right. 
uh, and you can share your own experience, right? We're only experts um, of our own experiences, right? We're not experts of someone else's experience. So I think that there's no doubt in my mind that all of these different experiences that I've been through, whether it's familial relationship, um, you know, traumatic injury, et cetera, um, you know, have, has helped me to be a, a better clinician, but um, it's also just helped me to be a better person. And that's probably the most important. That's like my secret sauce, right? Like, you know, uh, my gold nugget, uh, what makes me special is me, right? And that's kind of with everyone, right? There's something in you that makes you special and unique and different. And, and you know, it, it's, it's not the juice, it's the sauce. You know, the sauce lasts long, you know, there's something there. Uh, and you have to figure out what that is, you know, what's your sauce. And and I think that um, the more empathetic you are, the more you do a deep dive into what really matters to you, the better your work is going to be. You know, you want to treat people like it's your mother, it's your father, it's your brother, your sister. Um, if you're just treating them like, quote unquote, just like people, that's a good start. <laughs> but that's kind of not where you want to end, right? You want to you want to kind of end treating people like family. <laughs> That's kind of where you want to end. So, um, you know, these experiences have helped me to connect with people across race, color, creed, religion, sexuality, et cetera, and to treat everyone that I come into, whether it's journalism or consulting or public health or medicine, like family. That is such a great message. Um, so you, have you had experiences um, that you described where in your journalism career where it was difficult for you to tell the truth or to uncover the truth about a particular story? Is that something that you can talk about? Yeah, for sure. I, I think I think the obvious one is, um, you know, during the pandemic, uh, there were a lot of uh, sort of fine details that people wanted to get the answers to that we just didn't have those answers to. And I, the hardest part was to say, I don't know. Um, when everyone is looking at you like, oh, no, you're a journalist and you're a doctor. No, you should know, right? Like this general journalist, like they won't know. Or the doctor who maybe has some difficulty talking on camera, like that person doesn't know. But you, <laughs> you of all people, you should know, right? And you have extensive uh, experience in the field of public health. So you should know how to triage the patients. You should know this. Um, I, I felt like, you know, there were many people in the field who had a cop out, right? Um, a, a doctor, um, you know, who doesn't have a public health background, the reality is like learning how to triage patients on a population level when it comes to like a vaccine rollout. That's not something that you learn in medical school. So like, that's not, that's just not information that you're privy to. So I don't expect for you to know kind of the ins and outs of how that works. They're actually looking for guidance from people like me to be able to come and like do that. Right. And, and what you're doing is you're actually using your experience of like what you've seen around the world, right? Like I think um, the year before the pandemic, um, one of my last stories for MBC, I was actually in Nigeria, right? And I was doing polio eradication, right? And all the sort of communication around that. So, you know, you're using information that you're getting from another part of the world, right? Like that has experienced something, whether it's polio, whether it's Ebola, you know, there's all these different surveillance systems that, you know, that we're thankful that, captures disease and it doesn't hit American shores. <laughs> so in many ways, you're using all that information and you're bringing it here. And when you're bringing it here, people are so just not privy to what's happening around the world since we have such an American sort of centric news cycle 
that when you're bringing that information here, they're like, who, what, 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 like, what's going on? Like, I don't know this. I don't trust it. I don't do I don't this. So you have to constantly provide answers. Uh, and some of those answers are just answers that people may not be privy to. It's information that people may not um, have access to. And at the same time, you have to tell people to trust in some things that they cannot see, trust in things that they maybe don't understand. Uh, and you also have to say, I don't know when you don't know. And that's not satisfying all the time. Sometimes uh, for me, that's like the best answer that I can give. And for other people, that's the absolute worst answer that you can give, especially when you're frantic and you're scared and you're looking to this person as the person who should have the answers. So definitely, I would say that the pandemic, 100 percent, you know, whether it was uh, talking about vaccine development, whether it was talking about vaccine hesitancy, um, whether it was just, you know, sort of unpacking and uncovering some of the uh, not some of these, there's many issues around uh, resource allocation in historically marginalized communities, right? As a member of that community, um, I have to be the person who's kind of like the in-between to say like, hey, we need to make sure that the system is better and that the system is working equally for everyone. Uh, and what the information that you're getting from other people combating is like, well, the, the, the system was never created to actually help us. So how are you working within a system that is broken to help us? It kind of sounds like bullshit. So I have to kind of navigate that and say, I'm, I do understand that the system is broken and that the system was not created to work for you. But right now I can't recreate the system. <laughs> right now I need to help you get through what you're getting through. So help me to help you help me to sort of um, garner up the sort of the energy and the critical mass needed to get you the resources that you need to get through this day and the next day and the next day and the next day. And if we can string together enough good days, then you won't remember. Uh, and quite frankly, you'll have the privilege of taking for granted, right? Uh, sort of uh, the the good that you'll see in the next day, right? Like, I want people to I know this sounds horrible, but I kind of want people to wake up and to sort of take for granted, like, hey, today I'm going to have food on the table. I know that food's coming. You know, I'm going to be able to pay that um, electricity bill. I'm I'm going to have heat in the apartment. I want you to take that for granted. But we have to string together many good days and we have to work within the confines of the system, at least to some degree, to get you what you need. But we can't stay here in a place of sort of deep contemplation about how the system is broken. Like we can't live there. We have to live in the action-based uh, portion of the paradigm. So those are some of the things that are difficult, just kind of being an in-between um, and having those conversations, um, you know, telling people the truth about, uh, you know, sort of how vaccines come to be, telling, you know, not, you know, having to tell people like, hey, a lot of this research has actually been done. And like, yeah, maybe it's comforting to be like, oh my gosh, it's a miracle we have a vaccine. The reality is like, we've been working on this for many, 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 many years. And now we had all the time and the money and the resources to sort of push this through. And it might be sad and sobering that it takes a global pandemic for everyone to kind of come together and work in that fashion. But alas, we're human and this is where we are. So those are some of the kind of conversations that are a little bit 
uh, difficult for me to have, but are getting easier and easier over time. Yeah, I can, I can imagine that those would be frustrating at times. And at the same time, you were, as you were saying before, you are so well positioned to have those conversations because you have, you know, the, this really unique skill set. And I think what we need so much is somebody who is able to translate complex medical and healthcare information um, in a way that more, more people can, can understand it. That's so important. Um, uh, so uh, I'm wondering also, how you then moved into teaching from that. Um, when did you start to be, build an academic career as well? So I would say that my official start of, you know, a, a career in academia started after college. So after college, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, I dropped pre-med when I was like after my sophomore year. So once I dropped pre-med, I was kind of lost. Um, and I knew that I wanted to do a post-bac program at some point, but I wasn't quite sure when I wanted to do it. I was just kind of all over the place. Um, and so I uh, decided to um, apply for a position as a math and literacy teacher through a program called Say Yes to Education. Now, Say Yes is kind of like uh, New York City Teaching Fellows or uh, TFA, Teach for America. I think those are more popular and people kind of know about those programs a little bit more. But um, Say Yes was it just an opportunity for young uh, recent graduates to get some classroom experience. And so I did that program. Um, I was a third grade math and literacy teacher at um, Luis Munoz Elementary School. So that's PS83 in Spanish Harlem. Uh, most of the time uh, when I was having conversations with parents, it was kind of centered around health uh, because when you're in third grade, you know, uh, you know, these, uh, you know, little guys and gals, they have ear infections and <laughs> asthma attacks and all, you know, all these different things that are going on. So um, it's kind of at the top of mind for many of the adults um, uh, in those arenas. So we would just have those uh, conversations. And, you know, I learned a little bit about myself that I was a little bit more science focused. Um, and I decided at that time that I was you know, just going to teach at some point, uh, just sort of in my life, I was like, Oh, I, I can always teach. But I, but I was thinking more so like, you know, if I became a doctor, if I became a physical therapist, which I was also interested in, in that field at the time, like if I became whatever, I could always teach, like I could always teach in those fields, right? So it was kind of secondary. Um, and then I became a physical therapy assistant, I passed with physical therapy um, in uh, by Penn Station. Uh, and when I was there, I would, you know, teach patients about exercising and things of that sort. Um, and so my, um, again, another mentor of mine, uh, Pamela Paspa, she had saw my interaction. She witnessed an interaction that I had with uh, one of the patients. And she said, hey, you know, you're really good at marrying the science stuff <laughs> with just sort of you know, just being like kind and compassionate and communicating uh, with people. And she was like, you know, I think that you could have a great career in physical therapy, but maybe you might want to have a career uh, in medicine. Uh, and so that's kind of how like the medicine part of that kind of came into play. But again, that kind of didn't come at me directly. It came by way of me teaching, right? And so I was like, I owe something to teaching. <laughs> I owe something to academia, uh, and so I always knew, again, that I kind of wanted 
to get into teaching in some form or fashion. I didn't know how, I didn't know where, I didn't know what capacity. I didn't even know what population. I tell people all the time, oh yeah, I started out as a third grade school teacher. And they're like, oh my gosh, so you definitely wanted to work with kids. Why didn't you become a pediatrician? It's like, no, like you don't, you don't really know how all the pieces fit, um, especially when you're building the, the puzzle on the fly. But, you know, I just, it was just kind of one of the things that I that I did. And then, um, you know, after I completed my MPH program, you know, that's when I really started deeply thinking about like, oh, wow, a lot of the conversations that I'm having is it, it's beyond misinformation. It is lack of information. Uh, and that's a completely different thing, right? Like someone who has all the pieces and you're like, oh, no, that piece goes there, goes here, goes here. That's a different conversation than, like, here's the puzzle. <laughs> you have to build this thing, right? And someone's like, oh, I didn't even know that this existed, um, but I like it, <laughs> right? So I was like, oh, I kind of need to take a step back. And so that's kind of how my undergraduate um, and, and graduate sort of educational career began. Um, it's just kind of you know, pre-pandemic and definitely during the pandemic, thinking to myself, oh, no, we need to teach our young people the importance of public health and some of these public health edicts. Uh, and it, it'll be much easier to explain um, some of our ethical decision making if they have this background, because we kind of just start conversations in the middle and we don't give uh, young people the why and they're constantly asking you the why, and maybe we're burnt out, maybe we're tired, um, maybe it's difficult, maybe we don't have the answers, but for whatever reason, the why kind of gets left out. And so people just regurgitate what they've learned from their parents and what they've learned maybe from some teachers um, and what they've learned from the adults in their life. And they just regurgitate and they just say it over and over. And, and you have to ask yourself, why have you never questioned that? Hmm. Why have you never questioned that? Um, and so, you know, education is 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 really important to unpacking the why. I, I did a I did a research study for Very Well Health, uh, and when we were conducting the research study, it was around vaccine hesitancy. And when we were conducting the research, you know, everyone, including members on the team, like you know, everyone, you know, participants. They're thinking to themselves like, oh, you know, there's these certain groups of people who, you know, they don't take the vaccine. They don't do this, that, and the third. And the reality is like when we conducted this really major study with thousands of people, you know, uh, we found that initially people sort of go in with their biases and they think, oh, certain people of racial and ethnic backgrounds or religious backgrounds, like, oh, those are the people who, you know, are most reticent to um, engaging in pro-health behaviors like vaccination. And then we learned from the study that really political affiliation is the number one determinant of whether or not someone engages in pro-healthy behavior or not. So it's just kind of those things. They're like, well, you know, it shouldn't take a global pandemic for us to start asking the why question. And so in order for you to unpack all the whys, you have to start early and, and you have to capture young people at a time where they want to know the why. Because after college and when they're into grad school, they're not focused on the why anymore. Now they're focused on the how, because the how is going to make them money, <laughs> right? So you got to focus 
on capturing young people when they're still curious, right? Once the curiosity wanes off, right, there's a realism, there's a rational sort of way of thinking that says, hey, you know, ration meets logic meets money, right? <laughs> so so I got to do that because I got to feed my family and this, that, and the third. But before the stakes are so high, all you're doing is asking why. And so we can't ignore that. <laughs> so we have to you know, I think that we need more people who are willing to, to some degree, do double duty uh, and to engage young people when they're most curious, most willing to listen, um, most influential, and quite frankly, uh, most uh, willing to share that information with their peers and family members. Yeah, that's so important. I mean, um, you know, with sharing information through media. I mean, as you're, you're saying, media has become so kind of siloed. You know, if your political in, uh, affiliation is one thing, you tend to read certain publications and uh, versus others. And so, um, as you were saying before, when you have this, you know, important information that you want to get out there to people, um, it just, the, the window of opportunity to, to do that seems to be getting smaller and smaller. Absolutely. Um, so I think a burning question for me and for I'm sure anybody listening to this is how do you balance all of this? I mean, do you, you've got so many endeavors, you've got consulting, you've got your own podcast, um, you're doing so much. So how do you manage all of it with your time? Do you have different days that are devoted to, you know, one thing versus another, or how do, how do you do it? Oh, uh, wow. Um, so the easy answer is like time management, right? Everyone wants to say time management. Um, but I, I would say that in addition to time management, you have to uh, honestly have people around. You have to have a great team, <laughs> right, who helps you. So I definitely don't do any of this stuff by myself. Uh, I would also say you have to show yourself some grace. Uh, grace, like you have to like sprinkle grace on top of the time management in your team, right? You have to have grace for them. You have to have grace for yourself. So it means that I can do a lot of different things. Doesn't mean that I do all of them, you know, well all the time. Uh, I try to have a bar. Um, one of anyone who knows me uh, knows that one of my favorite lines, and I say this all the time, is the standard is the standard. So if I can't do something to a certain standard because I have time constraints or, you know, something else has happened, like I say no, or I push it back or, you know, so I think that you have to be flexible and you have to kind of rearrange some things. But I think the most important thing is you have to be good, right? <laughs> the better you are at what you do, the more people are willing to wait for that product. Uh, and so you have to be good. The skill set is a skill set. You have to master it. And so you know, to some degree, I would say that I'm fortunate in that I work with a bunch of amazing people who are willing to work with me. So I don't have to do the grinding 100% of the time. I can enjoy my holidays. I can go on vacation from time to time. I can do all of these things. You know, I can plan for my wedding. I can do these things. Um, and so that's kind of how I juggle it is I, I go in with information that I give to anyone that I'm working with, right? Whether it's an investor or a client or, you know, a patient, I give them this information and that information that they have about like what my busy schedule is, that information really creates a boundary. And by creating that boundary, they kind of respect where I'm at. And of course I respect where they're at. And we're able to kind of meet in, in the middle. So media obligations, 
you know, sometimes you can't be flexible. Sometimes someone needs a story now, you know, like the DeMar Hamlin story that happened the other day, that just happened, right? Everyone in the country is watching a football game, a meaningful football game for playoff seating uh, or a seemingly meaningful football game, right? After the game, everyone's thinking like, yeah, the game itself is not meaningful, but you know, you're, you're sort of doing this and it's like, wow, something happens and you kind of need to be there now and drop everything and just cover this thing and start answering questions. That happens all the time. If a patient gets hurt, you know, you need to drop everything and you need to um, address the injury immediately and in a cute and sort of thoughtful fashion. But uh, most of the time you are not living in high acuity. Most of the things that you're doing are not life or death (laughs) and you can move things around and you can push things around and people will respect you. If you tell them that the product that I respect you enough that I will do this uh, when I feel that I'm most ready because I want to produce a product that you are proud of. Uh, People will respect that uh, more than you think. I think that Sometimes uh, we can be afraid to set those boundaries, but it, it, it's important. And and the more you do it, the more comfortable you get, right? You know, you, you, you know, at some point you're going to have to set a boundary, you know, and then you're going to have to sort of address that boundary. And then you're going to have to show someone your work within that boundary. And then that's going to lead to your promotion or your raise. But you have to have those tough conversations so that when you are asking for the promotion, you are asking for the raise, you get that, right? So what I do in terms of balancing everything is no different than what I think everyone is trying to do, which is, you know, trying to create boundaries, trying to have great time management, um, being organized. I mean, Google is amazing <laughs> to like organize your calendar and your schedule. Outlook is amazing to organize your calendar and your schedule. It might seem stupid to some people like, oh, you're using all these organizational tools. It's like, well, it does kind of have the job for me. If it pops up on my calendar and I get a reminder, then I'm like, oh, I got to do this. Um, but you also have to prepare. Um, and that is kind of your keeping your end of the bargain, right? Is I'm going to set boundaries. You're going to respect that those boundaries but I'm also going to produce awesome fucking work all the time (laughs) because I've set those boundaries and because I've created an environment where I know that I can. Uh, And so those are kind of some of the things that I, that I do. It sounds simple, but it's, it's, it's hard to do. It's it's hard to keep it straight all the time, um, but it's 100% necessary. It is so hard to do. I mean, it just feels like everything can feel urgent all of the time. So that's such an important reminder to set boundaries for yourself and to prioritize in that way. Um, and I'm wondering how much of how much of that kind of workflow and um, you know the work that you do outside of teaching do you share with your students? Because that it's such a wonderful example for a student who's interested in a healthcare career and maybe is also interested in writing, is also interested in teaching and these other pursuits. Um, you have so much to share, not just in your expertise for the subject matter, but also in how you might build a career for yourself that is um, maybe a little non-traditional, but very rewarding and fulfilling and meaningful. Well, three, three and a half years ago now, um, I will say that I was a little bit like close to the vest. <laughs> um trying to strike the balance between sharing and not oversharing. And I also didn't want to confuse students because like, they're like, Oh, this guy's a doctor and he's in public health and he's a consultant and, and he has a podcast. So he does health communication. Like 
this is just a lot. And so I didn't want to confuse uh, the students. And then I quickly learned that um, the more you become vulnerable and share your story openly, um, the just the more people they get it. <laughs> they just start to understand. And so I didn't want to poo-poo on my students' ability to just pick up on all of these things and how they tie into one another. And so I kind of realized, I think maybe after a year, I realized that I was doing a disservice to them by not sharing how all these things are connected. Like, how am I supposed to have an expectation that they can think abstractly if me, myself, I'm not engaging them in some type of abstract way? <laughs> like, I, I have to give them the type of information that they need to piece together. If I'm not giving them the information, then there's nothing to piece. So I was like, all right, I'm not going to do that. And I think part of that too is like, sometimes like you're like imitating like what you think your colleagues are doing or what you think the university wants you to do or like what you think is the right way to do it. And then you kind of have to like learn your own style. So I, I would say that I, I share quite quite a bit. Um, I have tons of students that come to my office and, and I talk to students and I advise students and I do a lot of career advising. I run the internship program uh, and the practicum program um, for undergraduate and graduate students here at the university for those who are interested in public health so yeah it's just like you have to share those stories because students come in and they're they just know that they're just interested in what you're talking about they don't even know that they're interested in public health they don't know that they're interested in social work they don't know that they're interested oftentimes in like medicine or or a, a healthcare related field they just know that they're interested in something, they're interested in you, they're interested in what you're talking about. And maybe, maybe by way of you and your path, they may be interested also in the thing that their parents are putting in their heads. Maybe, right? And they're just trying to make that connection. This older adult in my life that is not in the classroom is telling me to do X. This other person in the classroom is telling me how to be Y. Not what to do, but how to be. Like, is your being, does your being jive with my being? And does that jive with what my parents who love me and have, you know, dedicated so much time and energy into forming who I am, does that all jive with one another? That's all they're trying to figure out at this time. And so, and then obviously there's other things like, does it make me money? Does it make me happy? Can I help people? What's the work-life balance? Those questions kind of come more and more as they get older, they become more refined, they become seniors and graduate students, et cetera. But really, that's all they're trying to do, right, is they're trying to just piece that part of the puzzle together. So for me, I'm like, hey, listen, you have to know what the options are, right? Like, you can say, hey, I kind of want to be like you, but you have to know what that path to becoming like that is. You have to know what the best version of yourself is, and can you achieve the best version of yourself by going this path? You have to understand the paradigm of happiness, right? Versus stress, right? There's a stress happiness paradigm, right? The more stressed you are, you know, uh, oftentimes the less happy you are, except, right, if that stress is like kind of pressurizing the diamond, right? If, if the sort of cost benefit ratio of like, hey, this thing is super stressful, like becoming a doctor is really, really stressful, lots of tests. But you know that at the end, you're like, this thing is going to make me so happy that the stress that I went through won't even matter. So you have to kind of, you know, uh, do that analysis for yourself. But I have to give you a very important piece of the game. And that important piece of the game is that you could do it all if you want to. 
right? And so there are many different options and the options that are being fed to you by like parents and other adults in your life, those are not just the only options. Those might be the only options that they had at their disposal, you know, when they were younger and living in a different time. But right now, we have so many different options at our disposal. So it's important for me to say, I'm living, breathing truth of that, right? I am evidence that you can do more than one thing and you can do them all successfully and that you can use different parts of your brain in a very um, sort of, um, you know, in a, in a eloquent, um, you know, non-confusing conformative kind of way like you can do all those things together you can put all those uh, pieces together um and you know you can refine all of your different skills um and and you're not and and i think most importantly is you know as you go through this journey you can make mistakes <laughs> right uh, but you're never your your worst mistake <laughs> you can make mistakes and you will make mistakes along the way but you have to make those mistakes this is the only way that you're going to learn about what you really want to do is you have to learn what you don't want to do. So you have to make those mistakes and you have to go down this path. And it's important for me to share my journey and how I was interested in physical therapy. I was interested in this. I was a football player, you know, who thought that I was like, you know, going to go to college and do it then and go to the NFL and do all these things. I was, I was that I was the student athlete, you know, I was all those things. Um, and then I figured out who I was by trying all of these different things. And some of these things like teaching, I still took with me everywhere that I went, even though I haven't been a formal teacher my entire life. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like you have, I, I mean, you have such a beautiful, cohesive narrative through all of these endeavors that you have. And it's, it sounds like you've really identified the the skills and the strengths that translate through all of these pursuits that you have. And I think that's a really powerful model for students as well. Um, so it's been such a pleasure talking to you. Um, and I'm wondering what is your, what's your next big project that you're excited for? Well, we just did a complete rebrand of our podcast. It used to be uh, Heart Over Hype. Now it's The Revolutions Within Us. So that's taken up a lot of my time. Um, um, I'm also the chief media officer for a small publishing company called LGP Lashon Publishing. Uh, and so what we're doing is I'm taking all of uh, the skills that I've learned um, sort of in the world of media and now we're going to publish the story of first-time authors in all different fields from all over uh, the world. Uh, we have like 10, 10 ebooks that are going to come out. Um, they'll probably be all published by June. Uh, and so we're doing sort of a brand refresh there as well. And so we're going to continue to sort of forge and make headway in this health communications space. It's a burgeoning field. Um, it's the wild, wild west right now. But we want to create um, meaningful content that lives on that we're proud of for a long period of time. So that's probably the two big projects is the, sort of the podcast refresh. And then also, um, you know, starting up LGP, it takes up so um, much of my time. And then the, the last one is I, I may at some point uh, shift my clinical focus into a different field. I love psych. I don't know how, I don't know if I'm going to become a psychiatrist. I'm not sure, 
but I, I but I love it. Um, and like teaching, I don't know how I'm going to do it. <laughs> um, I, I, I don't know how I'm going to do it. I, I don't know. I don't know if the podcast is going to allow me to have the psych conversations that I want, because that could be it. Honestly, I, I just don't know. <laughs> that's just the that's just the truth. I don't know, but I do know that uh, increasing mental health awareness in some way is definitely something that I'm excited about and something that I want to do. But like every other project that I've taken on, I have no idea <laughs> what I'm doing, how I'm going to get started. I'm just going on a little bit of faith. Um, I'm I'm making sure that. I remain open to all the sort of networking and connections that are out there um, because sometimes in the most unlikeliest of <laughs> situations and scenarios, you kind of meet people who are jiving with you and who are like, I think this is a good idea. Um, and I'm also preparing myself for the no's because I know that along the way, a lot of people tell you no. So I'm just preparing myself mentally and emotionally because all the projects that I do, these big projects, like they seem really fancy and cool. And I think my students are like, whoa, like these are really cool. But I probably got like, probably got like a hundred times more no's than I got the yes. So I, I'm just preparing myself for that. And I have a great partner who is like super supportive and is like, hey, you're equal part dreamer and pragmatic. So I'm down. Like, you know, just keep dreaming and keep, keep doing that but those are the kind of the big projects that I'm working on and and I'm just trying to I've always had a, a bit of an issue which is um I was the creative that went into medicine I wasn't the science-based person uh, who found my creativity through that uh, so I've always just been my identity has always been a creative so I'm just trying to figure out just I'm always trying to figure out how to sort of marry everything together, uh, all of the science and then all of the dreaming and all of the creating um, and creating beautiful products. So uh, I'll get there. But that in and of itself, just getting my mind right for those projects is kind of a project in and of itself. Well, I can I can feel your CV growing longer and longer as I see those wheels turning over <laughs> there. You're you are unstoppable. So, and I'm so excited to see what what comes from you next. Thank you. Um, so, thank you so much. We will share links to everywhere people can find more information about you and your podcast, as well in the show notes for this episode. And just thank you so much. It's been so so lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's awesome being on this side of the mic <laughs> for a change. Uh, but it's been fun and it's been very interesting even for me to sort of share my story and to talk about it. And I really appreciate this opportunity. Thank you for listening to the Faculty Coffee Break podcast, hosted by the Center for Advancement of Faculty Excellence at St. Francis College. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll share it with a friend or colleague and leave a rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to know more about today's episode, please visit our webpage for show notes and transcripts. And join us again soon for more conversations about innovative pedagogy, curriculum design and assessment, and faculty development. The primary purpose of the Faculty Coffee Break podcast is to educate and share ideas for teaching and learning curricular and co-curricular design, and faculty development. 
The podcast does not constitute advice or services, and the views expressed on the podcast do not necessarily reflect those of St. Francis College. Thank you.